And one more thing, everyone. This is Rico, by the way. Um, You're about to hear a previously aired episode, albeit a great one, with Jenny Slate and John Waters as our guest. We hope you enjoy. But also, we've got a special podcast-only mini-episode, which we will be posting later this week on Tuesday, October 14th. It features a couple performances from our live show this summer in Santa Monica, California. Uh, The performances are from comedian Moshe Kasher and from the comedy musical duo and IFC-TV stars Garfunkel and Oates. Both performances were a tad risque for broadcast, but we think you're mature enough to enjoy the heck out of them via podcast without children in earshot. Call it the adults only after party download. Again, you can download that online only on Tuesday, October 14th. Meanwhile, here's your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. My dad told me this one. Okay, so a penguin walks into a store and buys a chapstick. And um, the man asks him for money, and he says, oh, you can just put it on my bill. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversation. You just got a joke from comedian and actress Jenny Slate. That'll help break the ice. Yes. Her movie Obvious Child just came out on DVD, and we'll talk with her about it later. Plus, everyone's favorite cult movie director, John Waters, stops by to answer your etiquette questions. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in June. So cast your mind back to a time before everything in the supermarket was pumpkin spice flavor, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. We are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a columnist and critic for Vanity Fair's Hollywood. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the 100 most edited Wikipedia articles. Hmm. As determined by who? Well, because, you know, Wikipedia is a, it's for the people by the people. So you can, you know, certain people can go in and write whatever they want. Yeah, which is why you get a lot of inaccuracy a lot of the time. But anyway, <laughs> someone at 538, um, Nate Silver's blog, was curious about which articles are edited the most. So they, they did the work. You could argue these are the pages that people are more interested in or that they're arguing over more, trying to get right. Yeah. And uh, there are some some expected results. The number one is George W. Bush. Of course, a very controversial, controversial figure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But then not even that far down the list, like number six is something that's list of total drama characters. <laughs> is this like Romeo, Juliet, Gilgamesh? Well, that's what you'd think. But I did my own extensive research, which was Googling it about oh. five minutes ago. <laughs> and apparently total drama is a Canadian animated reality TV show. Oh, my gosh. And that's it, been running for like a hundred and something episodes. So I guess it has a lot of characters. Well, The Simpsons has a lot of characters, and it's been on the air longer than that. Yeah, well, maybe the Canadians are just really into their Wikipedia. Editing. Or having it be accurate. <laughs> that's yeah. true. So let's give us some context. So we have George W. Bush... Jesus is in the top list, right? Uh, yeah, Jesus is uh, at number five below Michael Jackson. I'm, <laughs> so. By the way, I'm just noticing here Pink Floyd is outstripping Pakistan, Greece, Scotland, and South Korea. Well, we really know everything about <laughs> Pakistan at this point. That's but, true. But, but Pink Floyd is still something of a mystery. So. Thousands of years of world history dwarfed by a psych band. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Richard Lawson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like attending a history seminar in a liquor store. Minus class credit, sadly. First, the history part. This week back in 1920, a law went into effect banning an extremely cost-effective method of travel. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. 
In the early 20th century, people were pretty clever about saving a buck. Case in point, the parents of May Pierstroff. She was a cute, blonde six-year-old living in Idaho, and in February 1914, her folks wanted to get her to her grandparents' house, 70 miles away. But train fare was expensive, so they went with a cheaper method of delivery. They mailed her. Parcel post service had only begun the year before, and while the rules said you couldn't mail a parcel over 50 pounds, they didn't say it couldn't be a human being. So the Pierstroffs stuck 53 cents worth of stamps on May's jacket, and she rode the mail train to Granny's. Now, before you retroactively call child welfare on the Pierstroffs, you should know one of their relatives worked on the train, and he walked May to her grandfolks' front door. There were at least five other cases where folks beat the system by having trusted mail carriers transport kids, sometimes even infants, to distant family members for pennies per mile. You can imagine the Postal Service was less than excited about being used as a cut-rate passenger service and about its employees assuming responsibility for people's actual live babies. So in June 1920, a law went into effect. No humans in the mail, regardless of weight. The Postal Service isn't a total spoil sport, though. There's still plenty of stuff you are allowed to send if you follow regulations, including live scorpions, tiny quantities of cyanide, and deceased human beings in the form of cremated ashes. So that's the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Tissy Wally. She is bartender and co-owner of The Establishment, a bar in Grangeville, Idaho, the city from which Mary Pierstroff was mailed. And Tiffy, I understand your bar is in a post office, a former post office? That's correct. Yep. At one time, it used to be a post office. Could not be more perfect. Was your bar created to be on our show? today? It must have been. It must have just been fate. It's fate. All right. So you heard the story. What drink did that inspire you to make? Um, We created a drink called the Pierstoff Parcel. And uh, we use some Idaho Huckleberry Vodka. It's 44 North. Uh, that's what the name of it is, 44 North? Uh-huh. All right. Are huckleberries native to Idaho? They're especially Idahoan? They definitely grow here, and it's a big thing. Idaho huckleberries people, they sell, like, candies and lotions and such. All right, no stuff. lotion in this drink, just the vodka. Just the vodka. <laughs> and then what? Um, then we have some uh, blue carousel for color. Why, why blue carousel? Why do you want it blue? Well, we wanted the blue to go with the whole postal thing. The blue postal colors. Oh, that's right. That's the color of the USPS. Yeah. Okay. And then the kid drink, being a kid that was um, shipped, we did went with the lemonade. So we thought that would be kind of fun. Oh, that, so there's lemon in it? Lemonade, yep. And then we squeezed some fresh lemon in there as well to make it a little bit more refreshing and summery. And, uh, and then we just sugar the rim of the martini glass so that it can also be licked like a stamp would be licked for the <laughs> pure stuff parcel. Perfect. Yeah. All right. And finally, do I have this right? A friend of your family or something took care of May Pierstroff at some point in May's um, life? A friend of mine growing up, her mom is a nurse, and she actually took care of May Pierstroff right before she passed away. So she was so she was okay. She lived a long life. Yeah, I believe so. She wasn't traumatized by her trip on right. the mail train, <laughs> even though she wasn't marked fragile. Right. She survived. <laughs> 
Kissy Wally. She co-owns the Establishment Bar in Grangeville, Idaho, and she'll be serving that drink all weekend if you happen to be wandering through Grangeville. And, of course, you can disguise yourself as a scorpion and mail yourself there. That's right. You know, exploit those loopholes. Scorpions like drinking. Yeah, they live in deserts. People on the website, you're going to find that drink recipe and many more, all of them legal to send to your friends. We're at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made small talk, had a drink. Now it's time for some party music. And here with suggestions are the Swedish duo First Aid Kit. Four years ago, Brendan and I were staggered by their hair-raising live cover of the Fleet Fox's Tiger Mountain Peasant Song. And so is the rest of the world. The video racked up four million views on YouTube. Their new album is their first on a major label. It's called Stay Gold. Here they are with a playlist. Hello, I'm Joanna. And I'm Clara. And we're First First Aid Kit. We have dinner parties all the time, especially on Fridays, because in Sweden there's this thing called Friday Cozy Time. Fredagsmus. And uh, it's when you gather with your family and, like, usually watch TV. Yeah. And you and eat, eat unhealthy things. and uh, Especially tacos. Yes. Uh, we're obsessed with tacos, but, like, Swedish Tex-Mex, which is, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our dinner party soundtrack. Our first pick is a song for Zula by Phosphorescent. A good opening song because it has this like warm, welcoming feeling, you know? Yeah. And I think we've never played to anyone and they like have not liked it. No, like, I think everyone, everyone loves, loves this song. Some see love is a burning thing that it the first lyric of the song is um, Some say love is a burning thing Like in uh, Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash So it kind of has that uh, Yeah, it has a Johnny Cash feel to it See honey, I saw love You see it came to me It put its face up to my face So I could see Phosphorescent is this guy, Matthew Hawk I really love that he sounds kind of fragile and yeah, raspy. And, yeah, it's like, like broken. Yeah, sounds like he's been through some some hard stuff, and you feel for him. Poor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I don't know. It's just a beautiful song, and the strings are amazing. Our second song is a song by Johnny Cash, and uh, it's called "I've Been Everywhere." I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca Road When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load We chose it because we are board game crazy people. Yeah, like, like we, we, we play love board playing board games. That's all, we always play board games. If we games. had a dinner party, it's board games. Our favorite board game is called Ticket to Ride. Which is like a board game where you um, travel across America, you build trains, and then, you know, it's fun to listen to to the song in the background and just be like, yeah, I am traveling everywhere. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bear, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel ahead, my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been reading. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried to sing that. It's so hard, though. It's a tongue twister for sure. Johnny Cash really inspires us in our in our music. I mean, we did write a song about Johnny Cash on our last record, I Mean Lou just has this darkness about him. You, you know? hear it and you're just like, yeah, I know what you mean. I've been everywhere. When everyone 
we'd be leaving, we'd uh, we'd play this song, uh, which is uh, called "Lady with the Braid" by Dory Previn. Would you care to stay till sunrise? It's completely your decision. It's just that going home is such a ride, such a ride. This is from the 70s, this record. She was married to Andre Previn. He's like a composer. He then left her for Mia Farrow. The song is about a woman who's asking this man, who I think she's just met, can you stay the night? Would you hang your denim jacket near the poster by Picasso? Very sad song. It's really beautiful, and I think we play it, and, and hopefully people would listen to the song, and they they wouldn't want the to. The lyrics leave. are very fitting for yeah. this occasion. So uh, it's the end of the evening, and we're in our pajamas, and then uh, we realize we really want to listen to our own music. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I don't think this actually would happen. I think maybe like if we, it was just like maybe bare. some of our friends would kind of like play play a prank on us and play the song. I hear a voice call, calling out for me. The shackles I made in First Aid Kit and their song Silver Lining. It's off their new album Stay Gold, which came out this week. And with that, we are going to take a quick break, but stick around. In a minute, we talk with actress Jenny Slate about what may be the most controversial rom-com ever. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should note this is an encore broadcast of an episode that first aired in June. Well worth a second listen, however. Later on, we'll talk with John Waters. He'll give us etiquette advice. But first, let's hear from our guest of honor. And it's actress Jenny Slate. She was a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Millions of kids, young and old, know her as the voice of the adorable animated character she co-created, Marcel the Shell. Her newest role, though, is definitely aimed at grown-ups. She stars in the indie film Obvious Child as a struggling comedian named Donna who falls in love with a guy while she simultaneously plans to have an abortion. The film's out on DVD this week. When I spoke with Jenny back in June, I asked about the challenges of making a romantic comedy that doesn't trivialize the most controversial issue in America. Yeah, I mean, the number one issue first for me is I'm a huge romantic comedy fan, and when they're not good, it's such a bummer. (laughs) So that's kind of number one. Is it going to be romantic? Is it going to have, is it going to make you feel good? But then, you know, number two, it's a modern story where I think the statistic is like one out of three women in their lifetime will have had an abortion. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. women talk about it. Some don't, but in general, it's not talked about in film in a way that's normal. And I think the way to do that, if we were going to make it a funny story, was to not make jokes about abortion or say that abortion is funny, but to say that life is funny and people are funny. Sometimes they go through stuff that's more serious, but it doesn't mean they don't joke. Hmm. I think we just tried to make our jokes thoughtful and make sure that they're not shocking. You know, mm-hmm. like not trying to be shocking or tough or rough. Yeah, in fact, the the one time, I can't remember what the joke is, but there is one moment where one of the characters does 
tell a joke that is really shocking. And yeah. everybody in the scene is like, oh, my God. Right. It's where Gabby Hoffman's character, Nellie, says to Donna, Donna's about to go do her last stand-up set. And she says, you're going to kill it out there. And Donna says, oh, I actually have an appointment to do that tomorrow. Sorry, oh. sorry, sorry, sorry. I think that's important. It is shocking, but it's also Donna knows she knows she put a toe over the line. And it's okay. It's okay to kind of like dress up in someone else's voice Mm. and to be flexible with the limits and to say like, you know, I actually don't think that. I don't take this lightly, but you know what? Just let me laugh for a second. Just let me feel a little bit of relief. I do have to say regardless of all this, because you do thread that needle expertly, I still kept thinking to myself, where did everybody involved in this film get the guts to take it on. What is the drive to make? I mean, there are so many reasons to say there's no possible way to make to pull that off and have people not, at least 50% of America, not hate us. Yeah, I mean, part of that's probably a question for Gillian, our director, but I I think, first of all, it's such a small movie, an independent film. You don't know if anyone's going to see it. We Mm. made it for very, very little money Mm. in Brooklyn last April for 18 days. So first we had the luxury of privacy. We didn't think about what the giant reaction would be. I don't think anybody was like, you know, should we do this or are we brave enough? I think it was more a a gentle but persistent nudge. Like there's a lot of stuff being said about what we should or shouldn't do with our bodies. And there are a lot of stories being told. And where's that one story where having the abortion is a clear decision, but what's not easy about it is that even though the decision is clear, a person is complicated. They're confronted with like, well, I could have done this or that. There's a million complications and many people that their decision connects to. A lot of women go through it and we just hadn't seen it yet. You did not write this movie. I didn't, no. Um, But it does feel like there's a lot of you invested in it on the screen and just talking to you. Mm. And there's no denying the character is a comedian like you are. (laughs) And one of the big issues in the movie, you could argue the heart of the character, is that she is dead set on expressing anything that comes to her mind publicly. Yeah, she can't help it. Yeah, to the point where it destroys her relationships. And this is something we had Mark Marin on the show, and he deals with the same issue in his TV show. Uh-huh. So I'm going to ask you what we asked him. Why do comedians have this need to make their private lives public? I think for me, um, I think I am aware of the nuances and the boundaries. You know, like I, I wouldn't talk about my husband in a bad way on stage or if we had an, had an argument, I wouldn't get up on stage and be like, well, I just came from really getting my butt chewed off by my husband or, you know, whatever, whereas Donna yeah. would. That line is different for everyone. For me, I'm a middle child. I think I'm, and, and I'm also really, I think I'm gregarious. I like to talk to people and I talk a lot and sometimes I get embarrassed about that, mm-hmm. that I've talked too much. But it's something I need, so how can I process that need? I'm, I'm lonely by nature. I like to be around people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I want a lot of friends. So when I get on stage, the hope is, will you be friends with me? But really, really me. Oh, interesting. But then also, I don't actually have to talk to you afterwards, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I... You want you want them to like the real you, but you also want the distance of they're the audience. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I don't actually, they don't actually get to tell me back. Although... I, I mean, I have stayed at shows, especially at Q&As of our movies, and hugged every single person that came up to me and meant it after the show. And I like it. And then I got a cold, of course, because people are, <laughs> don't wash their That's hands. the danger of being friends <laughs> with everyone. I put everyone. my hands in my mouth all the time, yeah. But it is a, 
It is an exchange that really benefits me. We close this conversation out every week with two standard questions we ask everyone on the show. Right. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Um, aren't you that girl that said the F word on SNL? That oh, is that's the right. Number one question I wish people would stop asking. For those who don't know, you blurted out the F word. Was that your first night on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. And by the way, everybody knows. I mean, like... <laughs> Everybody asks me, and it was years ago, and it's one swear. I've said that word a million times since then. (laughs) I know. That was an especially public one. I know. I get it, but it's like, it's done. Yeah, I did it. (laughs) The (laughs) end. I don't care. (laughs) I'm sure there's video. Yeah. Um, Our second question is, tell us, it's kind of the opposite, actually. Tell us something we don't know. Um, I feel like you probably know this, but one thing that I'm very interested in is that Palm trees are not indigenous to California. I was I was aware of that. Yeah. But where are they they're from Spain, is that right? I think so. Everyone thinks of like Hollywood as like palm trees and stuff. But it's actually just a desert dressed up in someone else's trees. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense though, doesn't it, for LA that the most Certainly. iconic thing about it is manufactured, <laughs> yes. is synthesized. And also I like that, you know, it's a tree that basically has a hairstyle. Jenny Slate, she stars in the film Obvious Child. It came out on DVD this week. And Brendan, after first airing that, you may recall, people wrote in in droves, not about the issue of abortion, but to challenge that fact about palm trees. That's right. It turns out there is one species of palm tree indigenous to California. That's right. Though it's not found in Los Angeles. Yes. Anyway, don't mess with the tree enthusiast lobby. They're vocal. To eavesdrop. Christina Henriquez has written three books, as well as stories for The New Yorker and The Atlantic. Her brand new novel is on a bunch of must-read lists for the summer. This week, we overhear her read an excerpt. Hi, my name is Christina Henriquez, and I'm the author of the novel, The Book of Unknown Americans. It has 11 narrators, and I'm going to introduce you today to one of them. His name is Rafael Toro, and he's the father of a family who's come from Panama. I was born in 1967 in a town called Los Santos. I was an only child. My father moved us to Panama City when I was five because he had political ambitions. My father used to walk around the house in his socks and make speeches about everything. He made speeches about the dishes stacked in the sink, about Gerald Ford, about the raspado vendor who'd gotten in his way. He had a temper, too. I remember one time he got so furious that he picked up a ham my mother had prepared for dinner and heaved it into the front yard. My mother ran out to retrieve it, and when she brought it back inside, she was crying and picking pebbles and dirt off the seared skin. I thought that was how a man behaved, so when I got upset, I would throw things or kick the wall. After my father died, when I was 13, it only got worse, because then I really had something to be angry about. I missed him after he was gone. My mother must have felt the same way. There were days she didn't get out of bed. I don't think she could function without my father. Then one morning I went to wake her and she didn't move. I remember her arm was cold when I shook it. I spent a long time after that feeling like I didn't care about anything. I stopped going to school. I started drinking during the day. 
I got into fights at the bar with guys on the street. My wife Celia saved my life. I remember she touched my shoulder. I must have said something funny, but I don't know what, and if you ask her, she'll claim I've never said a funny thing in my life. But she laughed, and I thought to myself, who is this girl? I was 18 then. I was still sleeping at friends' apartments, so Celia and I sat on park benches and drank bottles of beer, or walked down Avenida Central, or sat on the rocks by the bay. She could sit for hours with her toes in the sand. I never saw her happier than when we would go there together. How can I describe what it was like during the invasion? We went three weeks without leaving the house. We were eating toothpaste by the end of it. There was static on the television. We didn't know what was going to happen. Then we heard from a neighbor that Noriega was gone, and suddenly there were voices in the streets again, sharing stories about what it had been like, how scared we had been. I didn't even know how to comprehend it. Burnt-out cars and the rubble of buildings, broken glass and charred palm trees along the sides of the roads. It looked like a different place. I remember Celia burst into tears the first time she saw it all. We never felt safe there again. We felt as if our home had been stolen from us. And part of me felt embarrassed, I think, that my country hadn't been strong enough to resist what had happened to it. Maybe the way to say it is that I felt betrayed. We're Americans now. I'm a line cook at a diner, and I make enough to provide for my family. We're citizens, and if someone asks me where my home is, I say, Los Estados Unidos. I say it proudly. Of course, we still miss Panama. Celia is desperate to go back and visit. But I worry what it would be like after all this time. Sometimes I think I would rather just remember it in my head. The way it smelled of car exhaust and sweet fruit, the thickness of the heat, the sound of dogs barking in alleyways. That's the Panama I want to hold on to. Because a place can do many things against you. And if it's your home, or if it was your home at one time, you still love it. That's how it works. Writer Christina Henriquez reading from her new novel, The Book of Unknown Americans, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from the known American public media. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Rico, you know that feeling when you haven't eaten in a while and Mm. the slightest irritation makes you want to lift up a station wagon and hurl it through a storefront? Uh, I get kind of grumpy when I'm hungry. (laughs) If that's what you're talking about. Similar, similar, yeah. (laughs) Well, there's of course an increasingly popular word for that, hanger. That would be hunger plus anger. Of course. And it turns out, even if the word is fake, the feeling is real. Hmm. Eleanor Morgan, the UK editor for Vice Magazine's online food channel Munchies, wrote an article about the science behind hanger. When I met with her to speak about it, I asked her why. To say that it defines me is probably one of the biggest understatements I could make. (laughs) Um, my, My life is kind of defined by 
exactly what my next meal is going to be, where I'm going to eat it and how I'm going to eat it. Um, mm. And it's been that way for as long as I can remember. But the hanger thing, it's its something I've become aware of and tried to get on top of in recent times, um, just because it's such a horrible feeling. So you identify that when you're deprived of food, you get grumpy and... Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And anger is a very similar emotion to anxiety. Mm. And I feel both of them in kind of equal measure when I need to eat. (laughs) Well, according to your article, the anxiety and anger you're feeling are very real. So tell us, why do we turn into monsters when we haven't eaten in a while? Well, I think the important thing to remember is between our brains and our digestive system there is effectively a superhighway of hormones and when we're hungry there's an increase and I only found this out through interviewing a professor in the US there's an increase of a hormone called ghrelin okay which increases our motivation to eat and when this hormone is elevated it can also activate the pituitary adrenal axis in the brain Mm -hmm. basically your stress component and then once you eat this hormone then chills out a bit and your mood returns to vaguely normal so yes there is there is a lot of science behind it it's so good to hear that there's a scientific excuse for my occasional bouts of grouchiness (laughs) it's also a reason why our body does this right i mean there's a purpose behind hanger well yeah i mean it releases it If your physical symptoms aren't enough of a prompt for you to eat, you know, your stomach rumbling, feeling lightheaded or whatever, the activation of this part of your brain is another way of your body saying, hey, you know, you really need to eat something. So, yeah, it's it's a kind of twofold, please feed me. Mm. plea from your body. Yeah, the the professor you cite in your article, Paul Curry, he teaches mm. at Reed College. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he also talks about how you don't have to eat a certain amount of food to satisfy hanger, right? You just have to let your body know something's coming. Yeah, and certainly from my own experience, which is the only way that I can relate to what he was saying, um, I think the minute you start eating or, you know, a few mouthfuls in, your body realizes that satiation... Is that the right word? Satisfaction is coming. Um, yeah, satiety, I think, would be the technical say, word. Yeah. But when you start eating, everything kind of calms down. In the article, you talk about real-world consequences that happen uh, related to hanger, mm. and you cite this uh, study done in Israel. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, these scientists did a paper. They examined a 1,000 rulings by Israeli judges. Um, they were doing parole hearings. And over the course of nearly a year, the investigators found that Most of the lenient verdicts were given in the mornings and right after lunch, which suggests a significant relationship between how favourable the judge was feeling um, in relation to when he or she had last eaten. So it kind of... So it it was like right after breakfast and right after lunch, the most lenient rulings. It was significant. Um, I think the favourable rulings uh, peaked at about 65% in the morning and then declined over the day. So I think it's pretty black and white. All right, so we've established that hanger is a real thing. It's part of the human condition and has been so for a while. And yet I feel like it's been kind of in the zeitgeist lately. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you guys over there at Vice are kind of monitor what's happening 
on the Vanguard. I mean, I feel like it's more popular than ever. Definitely. I think it's, I mean, people love composite words and buzzwords and mm. the internet loves these things. I think it's very easy way for people to kind of, you know, it's an arterial route into a subject. And um, if there's a... <laughs> Well, it's true if there's a kind of buzzy word that you can associate with it, but it, you know, it's one of the ones that actually works and makes sense. But it's definitely something you hear. I mean, I hear it at least once a day, I think. So you're saying that this is like the cronut of uh, <laughs> the cronut of human emotions right now. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Eleanor Morgan, she edits Vice Magazine's food channel called Munchies. All right, and folks, even if you are suffering from hanger, coming up, we've got something to put a smile on your face. Etiquette advice from cult director John Waters, because of course, when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we talk with William Stadium, author of Jet Set, The People, The Planes, The Glamour, and The Romance of Aviation's Glory Years. Mm, so like coach seats that don't crush your body? Even more glamorous than that. That's it's crazy. Salad days of flying. It sounds but first, magical. it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and this week... You might want to send your kids out of the room for a few minutes while we get the answers because our guest is a chronicler of off-color behavior, let us say, John Waters. His gloriously trashy, no-budget cult films, many shot in his hometown of Baltimore and many starring his late friend Divine, made him an indie cinema legend. His hit film Hairspray turned into the hit Broadway musical Hairspray. He also makes and collects art, and uh, most germane to our purposes today, he is a best-selling author. His new mm. book has a self-explanatory subtitle. It's called Carsick, John Waters Hitchhikes Across America. And John, we couldn't be happier to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I didn't have to hitchhike to the radio studio, so I'm happy to. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> as bourgeois as I sound. Yeah, we did send you a horse and buggy to pick you up. No, yeah. that would be embarrassing. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that would be bad camp. I couldn't think of anything worse, especially since I'm not Pennsylvania Dutch. <laughs> so in the introduction to this book, you uh, remember your youth where you claim to have not only regularly hitchhiked home from school, you were expected to do so. Yeah. What kind of Dickensian world did you grow up in that you didn't have school buses? You know, I went to private school, and, and all oh. the Catholic and private school kids all hitchhiked home from with their lacrosse sticks over their shoulder. It was not thought of as weird. Every parent huh. uh, expected their kid to hitchhike home. I don't know. It wasn't thought of as bad, even though the same perverts picked me up. They did. The parents just didn't know that. <laughs> really? <laughs> you could defend yourself with your lacrosse stick. Well, you could say no or yes. And... Often I said no. Occasionally I said yes, depending how school went that day, what the anxiety level was like. I was in high school. Holy moly. Well, in contrast, basically this book paints a pretty heartwarming picture of America, I'd say. People are almost universally helpful to you as you hitchhiked from Baltimore to San Francisco. How does that jibe with what you expected? Well, they all were, were kind when all their way. Most of them thought I was a homeless man um, and tried to help me. Um, they were trying to help people. I think if you pick up a hitchhiker, it instantly makes you a better person. Did you expect that? I don't think that most people expect that hitchhiking is going to be even mildly safe, much less a, a pleasant experience. Uh, well, it wasn't always pleasant. Believe me, standing by the road for 10 hours was a new kind of <laughs> agony, believe me, of tedium. <laughs> but I have always believed in the basic 
goodness of people. I can get along with most kind of people. So uh, I always said that if I had a really dangerous ride, I was going to say, uh, well, you know, there, this is a reality show and a satellite is filming us right now. And I bet that would have worked, actually. <laughs> there are drones. But I never had to say yeah. that. Never had to say that once. Well, some of the people who picked you up knew that you were John Waters. And, and in a way, the book ends up being kind of a rumination, you know, on fame and the benefits thereof. Did you get a better idea of how famous you actually are during this trip? Well, not really, because people would say that they would drive by me and think that was John Waters, and they'd say, well, no, it isn't. Why would he be standing here on this entrance <laughs> ramp with a sign, you know, in Indianapolis? Why would that be him? Most people, I don't know if they knew who I was or not, but I would tell them, and then they were okay about it. They said, oh, that's interesting, but they didn't care that yeah. much, really. A lot of people don't believe you. Some just thought I was crazy. Like I said, I was Mick <laughs> Jagger, basically. I like that you said that everybody thought you were homeless. You have an impeccable mustache for a homeless guy. Yeah, but you can't see a mustache. I have a thin mustache. It's hard to see when you're sitting across from me. But, but going 70 miles an hour past me on an entrance ramp, you can't see my mustache. And I had on, it was raining, I had on a slicker, a baseball hat that said Scott of the earth, which I shouldn't have worn. But you couldn't <laughs> read that either. But I was reading the, that. I'm like, why would you pick that cap of well, all because caps? It, because he's John Waters. No, because it <laughs> fit me. And I look terrible in a baseball hat. And I don't have baseball hats. What do you think? I have a Ravens hat? You know, so, um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't. All right. Well, you made it across America despite the hat. So that on this show, that qualifies you to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Yeah, I believe I am. Yeah, yeah. I was taught good manners. Are you ready for these? Certainly. All right. All right. Our first question comes from Jared in Hollywood, California. And Jared writes, when picked up as a hitchhiker, is it proper to request things like a restroom stop, that the temperature of the vehicle be adjusted, windows rolled down, etc.? Or is it bad form to request such things? Well, if you're an experienced hitchhiker, you eliminate before leaving in the morning. I think it's incredibly <laughs> rude to keep saying, uh, could you pull yeah. over again? I have to pee. So, you know, I didn't drink 30 cups of coffee before I left, <laughs> believe me. Yeah. Uh, you learn that early. You're paranoid to eat anything because you don't know where you're ever going to be able to really stop. The, the answer to that is, yeah, it is rude. And any of the you can never say, like, slow down. In backseat driving's rude unless your life's in danger, which never happened to me. And in the, it was always comfortable. I was so glad to be in the car. I would have ridden in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go, Jared. So basically, it is rude to ask these things. Just yeah. be happy that you have a ride. Yes. yes. And you probably will be, according to John. And beggars can't be choosers is sort of true. Uh, here's something from David in Fort Collins, Colorado. David writes, now that we are in the warm weather season, I noticed some people slipping off their sandals and placing bare feet on objects other than the floor in public settings, airplane seats, coffee shop furniture, etc. Can you provide some guidance on the proper manners with regards to bare feet in public? Well, if you have your shoes off, remember, they're shrimpers. That is foot fetishes. And they're always thinking dirty about your feet. So wherever you are, you don't realize that you're shrimper bait. Uh, another thing... Oh, God. I would never. I see people in the in the plane walk in the bathroom with bare feet, where you know you miss. It's on the floor, some. So you are basically walking through a lake of urine. No. So I basically think it's a bad idea. Yeah. So just never take your shoes off and much less place them on anything. Well, unless wow. you're a shrimper, you know, unless you're looking for a date, or unless you want to go in the men's room or the ladies' room and get shrimped on Should the airplane, John, maybe. Do you get like do you get emails that update you on shrimpers and subcultures? 
filters. No, but I know shrimpers. <laughs> there's whole books about shrimpers. I mean, shrimping is a fairly normal thing to do once, but it's not I just, like a. I just didn't know it was called shrimping. I don't, You've never shrimped anybody. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. Not that I know of. <laughs> Oh, well, you maybe want to try it. It's safe. Okay. You can't get pregnant. Wow. Uh, here's something from JR in Los Angeles. On long stretches of road, I'll often be driving near big groups of motorcyclists. Sometimes they zoom around me and swarm in a way that's annoying and kind of dangerous. The last thing I'd want to do is get ornery with a posse of motorbikers, but someone should say something, right? John? I just yell to him and say, hi, come on over. You like bikers. I like bikers, and they always like me, too. I always get along with bikers. I, I think they're kind of fun. I like the ones that are in the groups that are so dangerous that you're not allowed to say the name out loud unless you are one of them. So if they do but, swarm you, I mean, they, that can be frightening in traffic. I'd be flattered. <laughs> you're if all they, for they it. If they swarm my car, I'd be waving, hi, what you doing? Pull over. <laughs> Invite them along. Invite yeah. them as part of your life. Some people like feet. Some people like bikers. Yeah. Some people like both. <laughs> so, all right, we have, we have our our last question is a question we ask uh, all of our etiquette guests, and the question is, and I can't wait to hear this. What's the most memorable get together you've ever been to? Details, please. I think I think the most glamorous was I was on the jury of the Cannes Film Festival, and Jean Moreau, the French actress, was the head of it. Mm-hmm. And just hanging out with her for two weeks uh, was the most glamorous uh, thing in my life. And I used to just whisper in her ear every night, more free food, which would <laughs> make her laugh. Oh, it was great. It was great. Do you ever, in those situations, like, you know, you're a kid from Baltimore, you know? Yeah. I'd think, wow, this is a long way from Lutherville, Maryland. It just means you can do anything you want. Just my advice to all young people is a no is free. Keep asking for what you want and have no pride. There you go. And you'll get there. All right. A final bit of advice from John Waters. John, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. And I hope they listen. Filmmaker, artist, and writer John Waters. His new book is called Carsick. John Waters Hitchhikes Across America. And folks, if you have an etiquette question, you can either roam the streets hoping to run into John Waters with his mm-hmm. thumb out, Look or, out. <laughs> or you can just send us your query via our website. It's easier. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party worthy topic. And for this week's installment, put on your suit and tie, flag down the flight attendant, and order a Brandy Alexander, because today the subject is the Jet Set era, and our teacher is William Stadium. He is the author of the new book, Jet Set, The People, the Planes, the Glamour, and the Romance in Aviation's Glory Years. And I think we need to just get something out of the way here. According to your book, Frank, Come Fly With Me Sinatra was scared of flying? Yes, it's remarkable. The man who's anthem, Come Fly With Me, was the the song of the jet age. He was a control freak, and he hated turbulence. He didn't want to fly through choppy skies. And, uh, you know, he was the first of the private jet set. Uh, The Learjet Corporation was uh, thrilled to gift him with one of their planes, and he had this politically incorrectly named plane called the El Dago. (laughs) <laughs> that he and the Rat Pack would fly around on. And, oh, goodness. Uh, they changed it to Christina after Tina Sinatra. Well, he still remains the poster boy of the jet set lifestyle. And, you know, when most people think about that era, they, they think of people wearing good clothes, drinking cocktails, laughing on a plane. When you started to research this book, 
What aspects of the jet set scene stood out for you? Well, actually, I, I sort of was a student at the dawn of the jet age or sort of the middle of the jet age, and I was a beneficiary of the student charter flights where you could fly to Europe on Pan Am mm. and get the champagne and, and, and the lobster thermidor for $100 each way. It was, it was wow. remarkable. <laughs> you had big seats. What What would be the worst level of steerage on any airline in the 60s would be at least business class today, if not first. Um, mm. It was very gracious in those days. The era you're talking about, you marked the beginning of it, October 26, 1958, which is when the first 707 took off? That's correct. That was the first commercial transatlantic flight. They'd been flying it around and testing it for years, but uh, it w- went into service in October 58. That year, only about half a million pe- Americans went to Europe, and then just a couple years later, it was up to two million. The growth was astonic- astonishing because of the jet, because of the convenience of it, because of the marketing of the jet. And before the jet, 85% of the people who went to Europe went on steamships and went on the ocean liners. Uh, within a decade, that that's, uh, had reversed, and only 15% went on ocean liners, and 85% went on jets. Now, your book chronicles a lot of the, the people in the business behind the jet set scene. And uh, one of the men responsible for that remarkable shift to airplane travel was a man named Juan Tripp, who was the founder of Pan American Airlines. Juan Tripp is the name. He had the uh, the sound of his name. It was like a, uh, a, a Latin, either a patriot like Bernardo O'Higgins or a dictator, but actually he was a, a very hardcore East Coast preppy wasp who went to Yale, and he happened to go to Yale at the right time because his best friends at Yale were people like the Vanderbilts and the Whitneys, and uh, these were the people who helped fund Pan Am and got it literally off the ground as a as a small puddle hopping uh, mail carrier who went got the contract to deliver the mail to Cuba and went from there to South America and then across all the oceans and that became the colossus of the skies. It was Pan Am. And his bright idea was bringing normal people to Europe, right? I mean, tell me what how that. Well, his bright idea of the uh, in the jet age was bringing normal people to Europe, but he was anything but a populist until the jet age. And then suddenly this aristocrat and this elitist said, I want my airline to rule the world. And the only way to do it is carrying as many people as possible. And he did that. You talk about the uppercase jet set and then the lowercase jet set. You know, Frank Sinatra and those folks, they got to where they were going to go anyway, right? They were going to visit these glamorous places. But it seems like the breakthrough was the, the middle class being able to go to these other places. Absolutely. The the, the plane, that, that was the magic carpet for the middle class. And you didn't have to be, the, the, the difference between the 1% and the 99% didn't exist. It was almost anyone could go off to Europe and live a jet set existence and go to the same places. It was very romantic era. Everybody, a brave new world and Americans got to see the old world and they got to see culture and they got to see things that they had never seen before. So I, I kind of call it the sophisticating of America. The the baby boomers grew up very quickly and that's where, you know, foodieism and, and all kinds of yuppieism, all that, the, the, the roots were in in the jet age. And so, and then you talk about the demise of, of the jet set. What brought that on? Well, there were a number of factors. Uh, one, the economy, what they called the Kennedy boom uh, eventually became the Kennedy bust after he was assassinated. Mm. Then in the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, terrorism took to the skies. Yeah. You know, the idea of a skyjacking was unheard of until then. That scared people off. And then Juan Tripp was a victim of his own hubris in that 
he and the people at Boeing, they said, let's let's go even bigger. Let's, you know, because the planes were doing so well in the, by the mid-60s. They said, you know, we, we can do a lot better. So they invented the 747, which, yeah. you know, presaged the, the age of the flying cattle car. But those 747s <laughs> were empty, they, you know, when it, its advent was in 1971. And they had excess capacity for the entire decade of the 70s. And so Pan Am, that was the end of Pan Am, was the 747 that marked the decline of Pan Am, which ultimately led to its going out of business. And talk about the end of glamour. I mean, now you go on an airplane, everyone's wearing sweatpants, you're, you're stuffed in together, you're paying $8 for a box that says protein on it. It's really, I mean, it, what, that. <laughs> what would we it's call like this? Of, uh, it, it's like a space odyssey. I just, um, you know, I'm in London now, and I just took a, this new Airbus double-decker 380. It was one of the most miserable flights I've ever taken. Uh, it was like 400 people on the plane, and it was hideous turbulence. And the, and the stewards told me that this is like the 1% versus 99% plane. It's very smooth in first class because that's in the, the nose of the plane. But in the back, by having a double-decker, when you hit bad weather, the whole thing, it's, it's like shake, rattle, and roll. So poor Frank Sinatra. <laughs> if he were ever stuck in the back of that would be would be miserable. So I mean that's just an emblem of the age where where things you know we're in hard times right now. Traveling is no fun. And Rico, extra bonus fact, the term jet set was coined by Igor Cassini who was a hugely popular gossip columnist at the time. Interesting. And his brother was the fashion designer Oleg Cassini, who dressed Jackie O. All right. So Igor knew of what he spoke. He was a card-carrying member of the Jet Set. All right. And alas, folks, that sadly concludes this flight of the Dinner Party Download. Please return your seats to the full upright and locked position. Our co-pilot this week, as always, was associate producer Jackson Musker. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Jeff Peters was our engineer. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Kevin Morby, guitarist for bands like Woods and the Babies, has a solo album coming out on October 14th. It's called Still Life. Here's a track from it called The Ballad of Arlo Jones. Bon appétit. The Ballad of Arlo Jones
Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Arr, and I'm Fred the Shrimper with shrimp cocktails for ye all. Mmm, I don't know what John Waters was talking about. Yeah, this guy's awesome. <laughs>